Welcome to a special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Welcome to the first religious broadcast, restaged here for the first and last time, potentially, here in Peckham. In theory, it's a Christmas special, or I'd like to think an epiphany special. You know, epiphany, that bit at the end of the 12 days when the wise men appear and they... um, have an epiphany. But whatever time of year this is, whether you've never set foot in a church or if you're an archbishop, or both, welcome to the first religious broadcast, reenacted for your very ears, an episode like no other. All who hath ears, let him hear. So says Luke chapter 8, I'm sure you know it, at the end of the parable of the sower. You know, a sower scattering seed, not knowing where it might grow or where it might fail to grow. Arguably, that's the origin of the word broadcasting, because just like that agriculture cultural seed broadcasts are cast broadly not knowing what would be picked up plant seeds for the future what would land on stony ground or what might prosper and radio like that biblical sower keeps throwing stuff out there that's the reason that if you enter old broadcasting house today you will still see eric gill's statue of the sower underneath a blessing in latin as commissioned by wreath oh yeah still there today saw it last week well this episode you will meet a man who tried indeed to scatter those seeds of broadcasting out there for the very first time in britain an unheralded pioneer of the pulpit and wireless because while the history book on my shelf here says that the bbc gave the first religious broadcast in britain well actually five months earlier meet dr james ebenezer boone this episode you will hear his words the only place that you can hear them because there are no books websites documentaries or general fanfares about him that i can see but handily for us dr boone wrote everything down including the words of his sermon hear it on this festive special of the british broadcasting century This is London College. Hello, ho, ho. Well, it's Christmas at the time of recording, although this episode works any day of the year. Uh, It's an excuse, really, to have an episode that we can get spiritual, but also technical. For a fuller account of the history of religious broadcasting, see our episode 60, uh, link to that in the show notes, and we covered a whole century of God on the Air, with some lovely tales of Wreath and the Archbishop, some early radio reverends, and how multi-faith broadcasting came in after World War II. But we whizzed past the origins of religious broadcasting on that episode. The very first religious radio broadcast was on the 30th of July 1922, five months pre-BBC. So this episode covers that moment. It's a full live reenactment recorded on location in Peckham in November of 2023. So this podcast, which is nothing to do with the BBC, by the way, unless they want to lease it off us, my people are ready to take your call, BBC. This podcast tells broadcasting's origin story chronologically, although we do dart around the timeline for specials like this one. But there is a reason that when we reached July 1922 in our main podcast timeline, we didn't tell you about Dr James Ebenezer Boone, the Peckham pioneer who was our first radio preacher. The thing is, we didn't know about it. Dr Boone's tale is largely unknown. I've read history books, BBC websites and academic theses, which I read for fun because I'm that kind of guy. And many of these claim that Britain's first instance of religion on the airwaves was Christmas Eve 1922, Reverend John Mayo, sounding like this. It is my privilege, by the aid of the misery of Mr Marconi in this wonderful house, to speak, as I understand, to many thousands of people. 
Surely no man has ever proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit as I am now occupying. Well, no, one man had proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit. And we're here to tell you about him, Dr. James Ebenezer Boone. We will bring you his words from his church as recorded 101 years later. This episode features then a recording of a live reenactment at the very church behind that first religious broadcast. It's Christ Church Evangelical McDermott Road in Peckham. I'm hugely grateful to all of them there for letting me come along and play and reenact this amazing story. Especially thankful to Adrian Holloway for organising at their end. Thank you to the audience who came along, including some of today's religious broadcasters. A few pause for thoughters were there. To Brandon Braganza and Riley King of the University of Winchester for recording it for us as well. And I'm also very grateful to Dr. Jim Harris, my fellow Radio 2 Pause for Thoughter, who cycled past the church a couple of years ago, saw this plaque outside, and he got in touch with me about it. You may have seen a plaque on the wall outside, which says that on this spot, on 30th of July 1922, Dr. James Ebenezer Boone broadcast the first sermon by radio in Britain to the congregation in this church. That plaque is almost the only written thing about Dr Boone's achievement until you start digging into the archives because then at the British Library there is Dr Boone's published pamphlet about what happened including the words of his sermon which you'll hear in a mo. So I'm also really grateful to Andy Mabbott for transcribing that pamphlet for Wikisource and that means that you right now can google the gospel by wireless and you can read along if you like so thank you Andy. Now notice the wording there, to the congregation in this church. So technically, although it's wonderful to be that first religious broadcast actually occurred 101 years ago, that actual place where he stood was five miles away in Blackheath. It's the only time I can ever really conceive of in history where there was a genuine church service that occurred with a packed congregation and yet no one leading the service. Instead, you had a box like this, just here at the front, and from that and the uh, gramophone horn, you would hear the voice of James Ebenezer Boone from Blackheath. Uh, He went up to the roof to wire up an aerial uh, so that he could be transmitting from five miles away in Blackheath uh, to the congregation in this church, but not just to this church. It was Britain's first religious broadcast, and therefore it could be heard, uh, I would say, throughout the British Isles, but the limitations meant... Coventry is as far as they could reach, but that was no mean feat back then. So that's what the bulk of this episode is. Uh, It's essentially as near as we can get to what that would have sounded like, that first religious broadcast. It was a church service, uh, so you'll hear essentially elements of that. We haven't got prayers, uh, which he would have included, but he didn't make a note of those, so I've not included that, or a, a Bible reading. We've got the sermon, though. We've got some introductory words, which I've sort of paraphrased from his later write-up about to what happened on that occasion. He also mentions a couple of hymns that he played via gramophone record. So I've included a couple of those, the actual recordings, I think, pre- pretty much or as close as we can find to it and I've actually I've added a third hymn as well um, which feels appropriate because it's maritime and um, a lot of early radio was about ships at sea so we've included that one extra so I think we're probably about 85 to 90 percent accurate best guess as to what it would have sounded like There'll be a filmed version of this live reenactment up on YouTube as well soon. A link will be in the show notes when that's ready for you. And indeed, I'm still recreating this uh, on tour one or two more places. I'll be at Rains Park in South London very soon. Uh, you can check paulcarenza.com slash tour for details of that. And my other radio history touring show, An Evening of Very Old Radio, 
come and see it or indeed book it now for your place. I'll be uh, in Dorset and Leicester and Devon and all over the place in 2024. Come say hi. As to this episode, there is another reason I've timed it to land around nowish, late December 2023, as I record this, going into early 2024, because it's pretty much the centenary of the BBC's first broadcast church service on the 6th of January 1924. Except it wasn't actually quite the first. It was notable, absolutely, but it was not the first BBC church service. More on that and why a previous broadcast actually takes the crown later in this episode, but we're going to treat this tale chronologically. So let us begin with Britain's first religious broadcast in 1893. 1893? What happened to July 1922 that this whole episode is about? Well, 1893-ish, 15 London churches and 15 theatres could be picked up in London homes via electrophone. And later, similar in Bournemouth as well. More on this amazing device in a future podcast when we chat to electrophone expert Dr. Tasha Kitcher. But we couldn't claim to recreate Britain's first religious wireless broadcast without mentioning the ones that involved wires that came first. See, Paris had the theatrophone or the theatrophone uh, connecting to your home phone line, and Britain had the electrophone. And these devices looked like stethoscopes and you would sit en masse and you would listen in from afar to a theatre performance or indeed a church service. Queen Victoria was known to do just that. And like today's channels, and unlike the first BBC broadcasts in fact, you actually had a proper choice of listening. Here then is a flyer for the electrophone from the 1890s, this Victorian streaming service as Dr Tasha Kitcher calls it. The electrophone is an electrical connection in a theatre, musical, concert hall or church, which conveys along a telephone wire to your home the vocal and instrumental melodies as they are being rendered, or the words of the preacher as they fall from his lips. They didn't want the church service taken over by technical means, so they actually hid the microphone in fake Bibles up by the pulpit. As for the cost to listen, £5 a year would get you receivers for two persons suspended each side of the fireplace or another part of the room, Use the ordinary telephone to speak to operator, can select only one entire performance available, or be given by the operator a selection of song and music from different theatres, etc. You cannot change the chosen performance for another. Or you could have the luxury of £10 a year. Receivers for four persons, attached to a small portable stand with a special transmitter to speak to the operator, can have all performances available and can change from one performance to another. It's like the offers that Now TV and Sky give you now, isn't it? You may hear in your home nightly, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, afternoon and evening. A sermon from the pulpit. All souls Langham Place. Highbury Quadrant. Marylebone Presbyterian. And on another flyer, they even list the preachers you would hear by name. You can hear Canon William Barker, M.A., St. Marylebone, Reverend J.H. Cardwell, St. Anne Soho, Reverend Charles Voisey. Now, I find this fascinating as an insight into early celebrity culture, because you compare that with the first week of Pause for Thought on Radio 2, or Thought for the Day on Radio 4, 1970, or indeed some of the early BBC religious broadcasts decades earlier, where they deliberately didn't tell you who you would hear so that you wouldn't just tune in for your favourite preacher. You know, instead you would tune in and hear who you hear. Anyway, more on the electrophone in about 10 episodes time when we have a fascinating discussion with Dr Tasha Kitcher. Cannot wait. We jump forward then to the start of radio and before we get to Peckham, let's go to America for their first radio station in 1921, KDKA Pittsburgh, because very soon 
they went to church. 2nd of January 1921, just two months into KDKA's existence at the Calvary Episcopal Church in Pittsburgh, this was in the service sheet, the bottom of page three. So, no biggie. An interesting arrangement has been made for tonight's service. The international radio company Westinghouse has installed wireless telephone receiving apparatus in the chancel, and tonight's music sermon service will be flashed for a radius of more than a thousand miles through space. There will be special Christmas carols and Gunod's magnificent credo by the choir. Mr. Whitmore will preach a New Year's sermon. Uh, Mr. Whitmore was actually the junior pastor because the senior minister didn't want to be associated with wireless, and so he let his deputy have the honour of being the first radio. Reverend. Is it not wonderful to think that wireless receivers for hundreds of miles around us may hear tonight the incomparable service of the prayer book, the lovely carols of Christmas, the tremendous Nicene Confession, and the spoken sermon's word of cheer for the new year? Yeah, forgive the accent. It's the best I can do at short notice. As for the words of the sermon, here's an extract of what Reverend Louis B. Whitmore said on the 2nd of January, 1921, to his invisible congregation by wireless. My friends, one would not lose an opportunity to speak and be heard by the radio congregation. He would want to say something that could be of use and of strength and of meaning to everyone who might hear his word. He would want to point out with all earnestness that the real perils and dangers of life are never the outside ones. It is never the difficult tasks that prove fatal to life. The real dangers to life are always the inside uncertainty, the inside entanglements, and the inside inability. The KDKA engineers were there dressed in choir robes, even the Jewish and Catholic ones who didn't know the words of the hymns but mouthed along. You see, they deliberately wanted to blend in with a microphone hidden inside the pulpit, harking back to the hidden microphones of the electrophone. So that's what was happening in America, January 1921. A year and a bit later, radio was finally allowed back into Britain again after the year-long gap. You can listen to previous episodes to hear all about exactly how and why the government essentially banned wireless in Britain for a year and a half. But when it did come back, and yes, Peter Eckersley and Arthur Burroughs are spreading word of wireless and its possibilities, and the BBC's not quite forming yet, but Arthur Burroughs is a demonstrator. He's there on the wireless from Marconi House, and he's transmitting to wireless demonstrations, including one in Peckham Town Hall. I'll let the previous version of me, recorded live on location at Christchurch Evangelical in Peckham, take the story from here. Does anyone recognise this? It's Peckham in 1922. You may recognise aspects. You may recognise people there. I don't know if you have any neighbours. <laughs> Who knows? So there was a particularly notable Marconi demonstration, Marconi Company demonstration, in Peckham Town Hall. It's an event called the Miracle of Broadcasting. Miracles and religion, we're slowly coming in to this building here. If you're local here, maybe your grandparents could have been there at that event. One person who was at that event was Dr. James Ebenezer Boone. And he came back with an idea, and that was, can we use this technology to transmit a church service? Can we go beyond the walls of Christ Church Evangelical here on the corner of McDermott and Reedham? And uh, he applied to the government for a license. Uh, he set up all of his equipment here, as you can see. We've got essentially a gramophone horn. Um, we've got all of the different um, kit and wires here on the roof, the aerial. He applied for a license to the government. But as you've heard already, the government had a rather risk-averse attitude to broadcasting. Plus a change. And they weren't so sure about this. And they said, no, we can't let you broadcast 
Um, they'd already at this point turned down the Daily Mail, who had applied to be a broadcast station, because the government said, no, it'd be too powerful to have a newspaper that's also a radio station. And that would ever be the case until the Times are changing, ultimately. And that's where we are now. But only Times, of course, the Times Radio and the Times Newspaper, the only ones, I believe, so far. But Daily Mail Radio, watch this space. They tried 101 years ago. They did actually do it, I think, in 1928. They chartered a boat and essentially did the pirate ships down the East Coast. And they broadcast. Unfortunately, they didn't have a power, powerful enough transmitter, so they just about reached a pedalo off the coast of Norfolk. But uh, it was a neat idea for one week in 1928. So... Um, Boone was turned down. The government said it'd be too much of us to give you a license for a church to broadcast. Because if we let your church have it, every church is going to want one. It's like, wait a wait, there's a fly in my soup. Well, don't be too loud about it. Everyone's going to want one. It was the same idea, really. And of course, and the government said we could, of course, never have the situation where every church is a transmitting station. Flash forward 100 years, one pandemic later, and we're all live streaming. So, you know, never say never. Boone accepted that. He realised that it was not really going to happen. But five miles away, Blackheath, they are manufacturing radio sets in a place called uh, Burnett Aerial Works, the wireless engineers. And what they would do is they would throw open those windows and on Blackheath Common below, they would have people gather and they could listen to live radio broadcasts. They had a gramophone horn facing out of the window and you could gather and you could hear the miracle of broadcasting. You could hear uh, a singer from Marconi House, potentially in London, reaching you there. In fact, on one occasion, the technology failed and the Burnett engineers were so worried about what would happen if they disappointed the hundreds of people on Blackheath Common. So they just got someone to sing just behind the window. La, 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 la. And everyone below went, it's amazing, it's like they're here with us, isn't it? And, and they were, you know. So, July 30th, 1922, Dr. James Ebenezer Boone gets in his Chandler motor car and he packs some gramophone records of hymns. He's already wired up this very church. And he's been up to the roof and the aerials there. He's also, at this point, this church, uh, at this moment, was in fact the home of Peckham Christian Union, of which Dr. Boone was uh, the head. Uh, he's not a, an ordained minister. He is um, a medical practitioner. He's, he's a medical doctor. But he runs the Christian Union from here. And with their help, they get the church packed on that Sunday morning. And so, with no one but an engineer in front of him, there in Blackheath, Dr. Boone picks up the microphone and begins. <clears throat> 2FQ Blackheath calling. Blackheath calling Peckham and further. I greet homes in the north, the south, the east and the west. Am I coming through clearly? Welcome to our service today. I'm radiating this to you from five miles away, and we begin with a hymn. Please find in your hymn books, Eternal Father, Strong to Save. I shall now attempt to play it in via gramophone record, and I will hold the microphone handset to the gramophone horn. <clears throat> if you would like to stand, you may sing.
I've been asked to point out that that was a gramophone record of the SETI Temple Quartet and not the church choir of McDermott Road, to whom I send blessings. I would desire you to send letters of appreciation detailing your location and the quality of this transmission so that we know how far this has reached. That being said, I have already received one message by wireless here at the Burndett factory during that first hymn. This transmission has come through from a well-known summer resort on the East Coast. It reads, a message received perfectly by great crowd on the seafront will take up a collection if it is desired. <laughs> I should confirm we are not out for collections today, but I appreciate it and I am glad this reaches you all the way in that summer resort on the East Coast. And now to my sermon. Almost instinctively at this time, I turn to John 3.16 for my text, to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Before I begin, I would like to make it perfectly plain, I stand by the Bible from cover to cover, all in, from the first verse of the first chapter of Genesis to the last verse of the last chapter of the Revelation of St. John. Now, for the moment, I'm not out to defend the Bible. The Bible can take care of itself, and I note in passing that when men attack the old book, it only ends in the biter being bit. Only a few years ago, a skeptic wrote from a certain room of a house in Paris that the Bible was antiquated, out of date, obsolete, that in a very short time at the longest, man would throw it upon the world's dust heap and leave it there. And that house today is a Bible emporium. The room in which that man wrote, sat writing those words that I've just quoted is so full of Bibles, you can only enter the room with difficulty. Well, as Robbie Burns says in Tamashanta Timoteo, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. I believe this is true. It is true not only because it is in the Bible, it's in the Bible because it is true. Just recently, a very worthy dean, speaking about our empty churches, said, or at least was reported to have said, that he had no doubt that sermons were dull. Well, if the sermons are dull, that's neither the fault of the Bible nor the fault of God. The man who can only preach dull sermons has no right to preach at all. There is nothing dull about the text that I have chosen. It's all about love. And there is no dullness where love is. Love is the greatest power in the universe. Could we but grasp it? Brute force against love has always lost, always will. Look at the world today. Nation upon nation on the brink of bankruptcy and ruin. All mark you the outcome of cruel and wanton war. In one word, force. The gospel is a gospel of love. You have the whole of the gospel in my text, and I've chosen this text because I see in it the three great verities of the Christian faith. Number one, the fact of God. Number two, the fact of Christ. Number three, the fact of future life. Now, first of all, the fact of God. Note this, the Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God. Written for man, it takes it for granted that man believes that already. It does not follow that just because our churches are to a large extent more than half empty, that men deny God's existence. I have neither the time nor the patience to discuss this subject with the man who bluntly and boldly tells me there is no God. The man who denies God's existence is an absolute outsider and should be treated as such. A danger to himself, to the whole commonwealth. The cry should go up, unclean, unclean. We do not live today in the poisonous atmosphere of a cold and naked atheism. We live in an age when all right-minded men and women are open to conviction and reason. People are seeking the truth today as they never sought it before. Now, an old man was one day asked if he knew so-and-so. Knew him, he queried in his reply. Why, I slept in the same church with him for 30 years. <laughs> Let the story be taken for what it's worth. 
We can, with all truth, say this, that men today do not go to church to sleep. If they go at all, they go desiring something, expecting something. Dull platitudes from the pulpit will neither draw man in nor keep men in. The modern mind craves for great things and not petty piffles. In a word, men want the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It's the whole word of God men want, not the half of it. When you begin to think about it, it's very much easier to believe that God is than believe that God is not and never was. And the man who tries to persuade himself that there is no God goes through life, always and everywhere, looping the loop with his own intelligence. He begins nowhere, ends in the same place. On the other hand, the man who begins with the fact of God falls into, into harmony with the very laws of his being. The stars in their courses help that man along the way. Now, the fact of Christ. Now, Christ is a fact in history no one outside an asylum for the insane will deny. Men have denied God's existence who have accepted the fact of the historical Christ. They may have accepted the fact because they had to, but they accepted the fact, and well, that's the main thing. But Christ, a mere fact in history, is not enough. It is true that Christ lived. It's no less true that Christ died. It's just as true that Christ rose from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then my text is useless and worthless. And well might the great apostle write, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Christ is more than a fact in history. Christ is a fact of eternity. Christ came from God and went back to God. The fact of the resurrection is everything to the Christian. Without that, nothing, and with it, everything. Thirdly, the fact of future life. Christ taught many great and far-reaching truths when he was upon this earth. He most certainly taught this, that the grave did not end all. Christ looked upon what we call death with supreme contempt. It was death by sin that was Christ's great and chief concern. Christ stands for all time as the great unveiler of the unseen world. In all his teaching, I note this, that while other men speculate and say, perhaps Christ affirms and says, this is, hear him now and hear him as he speaks about the future life. You who are listening to me, where you are in the east of England, those of you in the west of England, those in the north, and you from the south, listen, let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Now in these days, there seems to be a tendency in some quarters to decry the writings of the Old Testament. It's even been suggested we discard the old altogether, confine our attention to the new. For the life of me, I cannot see the reason of all of this. As a matter of fact, there is neither rhyme nor reason in any one part of it. As I said ten minutes ago, the book is one, and one it is going to remain. Now, when I tell some that I believe the Bible from cover to cover, they laugh. Well, the man who laughs last is said to laugh best. But when I tell some that I believe in the creation story as I find it in Genesis, they laugh. When some try and be clever and put that poser to me, poser as they think, mark you, when men ask me where Cain got his wife, yeah, they laugh. When I tell men that I believe what I read about Noah, Noah's ark and the flood, they laugh. When it comes to Jonah and the fish, they go blue in the face. But wait a minute, there is a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. The whole volume is a closed book if you've not got the key. It matters little to me whether God made the world in six days or 6,000 years. All the lesson that I get from the creation is this, that God made the world. Now, that God made the world is more likely to be true than untrue. In any case, the world never made itself. Until someone can prove to me that's not so, I hold to what the Bible says. That in the beginning, God made the world and all the world contains. Now, to ask me where Cain got his wife is silly. I neither know nor care. The lesson lies around Cain, not Mrs. Cain. What I hear Cain say as he goes out for the presence of the Lord that his punishment is greater than he can bear, I find in that matter for deep meditation and study. When I've mastered that, well, then I might give my consideration to Cain's wife, not before. 
As far as the flood's concerned, I do not trouble about the rain. If a, a man is drowned, it's of little moment to the man whether he's drowned in fresh water, salt water, buttermilk, or in a vat of beer. It was a flood. Keep to that for the moment. To me, it reads that it was a flood of the wrath of God. And the lesson I get from Jonah simply lies along this line, that Jonah brought a punishment upon himself for his own disobedience and very willful wrongdoing. I sometimes think the Old Testament reading is, is too strong for some people, that it hits too hard. These deluded people think they can get rid of the whole thing by simply saying, go, ostrich-like. They hide their heads in the sand. Oh, that some would just use their brains. Someone has said that just as all roads in England lead to London, so should all texts of the Bible lead to the cross. Well, of course, it will depend upon what the preacher is aiming at in his sermon. There is, after all, only one thing to preach, and that is Christ and Christ crucified. And all the Bible leads to that is the one thing in the Bible that counts. And reading Old Testament writing, this strikes me over and over again. That when you read something in the Old Testament, you often find its counterpart in the New. For instance, in the first book of the Old, I find my first Adam. In the first book of the New, I find my second. I find the Ark as a type of Christ in the Old. I find Christ himself in the New, one door in the Ark for safety, and all go in that one door, one way to the kingdom and to God, Christ, who said himself, I am the door. Now, the first Adam fell, the second Adam stood, the first Adam died, the second Adam rose again. In the Old Testament, I find Moses and the law. In the New Testament, I find Christ, and in Christ, I find grace and truth. I, I find sin and wrongdoing from page to page in both New and Old Testament. With Christ, so long as sinful men and sinful women were put right with God, Christ met sin, battled it, destroyed it. That was his mission, and he fulfilled it. At the world's price he could have, ruled the world and been crowned king. But this man who was called Jesus, God himself manifested in the flesh, chose rather to sit with a woman by the well who was hungering and thirsting for better things. Chose rather to meet men like Nicodemus by night that he might explain the mysteries of his kingdom. Chose rather to mix with publicans and sinners in order that he might lead men to God. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Men were lost because of sin. It's quite true that we're all sinners. But the great truth about sin tends to be lost in this vague generality. It's not enough to tell men that they are sinners, but men need to be taught that and taught what sin is. Sin isn't confined to wrong actions. Sin lies much deeper than that. It's bad thoughts, wrong desires, evil inclinations. And that was the high plane of Christ's teaching all through. Not only that lusting was sin, but that the look was sin nonetheless. If these things be so, it all amounts to this, that, that men could commit murder before they rise from their beds in the morning, cut the throat of a neighbour when they are lacing their own boots. And Christ went to the root of the matter. It was the heart. He ever sought to get the heart of man right. And that was his supreme ambition. That was his self-chosen task. And that is my sermon. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, we have another hymn to sing. I have a gramophone player lined up. And we will now stand to sing the first verse of O God, Our Help, in ages past. The organist Spencer Shaw, who once again is not here, but is on a gramophone player.
Well, may I add to wherever you are hearing this, that this is not the same as preaching to a congregation. But I have no doubt that this has come to stay. This innovation commands a wide field in which to spread the gospel. Although it is yet to be perfected, I am convinced that this will prove a valuable means of bringing the gospel into the very homes of the people. There are difficulties, and no one will deny that. The postmaster general will tell you that. The wireless companies will tell you the same thing. But if difficulties there are, they are there to be overcome. I'm not concerned with the secular side of things. The point to which I would draw the attention of the church building, to whom I speak, the whole church of the living God, is this. In speaking to homes, I believe a hundred miles away, this is the largest and the most unique congregation ever humanity has had. Secular concerts and good concerts are that are the order of the day by wireless, so could preaching the gospel join them? It seems to me no time should be lost. The church should strike out now and at once. If not, a chance will be allowed to pass by and pass never to return again. There must be no squabbling in the church over this. The church must be united and must remain unified. It will never come about that every church in the land will be allowed to have a transmitting centre. It simply could not be done. Now, speaking for myself, it does not matter a brass farthing to me whether I preach a sermon by wireless again or not. That is the merest detail. All my aim is that one sermon, at least, should go out each Sunday by wireless, advertised, wavelength, etc. given, and this one sermon be as much a feature of the Sabbath as the London or Dutch concerts are today, and indeed as any other concert may be tomorrow. Now, I'm not a doctor of divinity. I do not believe that God's divinity needs any doctoring. I'm not a reverend, I'm not a very reverend, I'm not a very anything. Well, sure, I have been called a fool, and the man who said that would never object if he was forced to put the word very right in front of it. Why, I'm not even an ordained minister. I'm a humdrum medical practitioner in a common or garden South London practice. Now, over in America, during the hearing of a certain lawsuit, a man was seen walking about the court in a very disconsolate fashion when a lawyer went up to him and asked, who are you in this case? Are you the defendant? The man turned and replied, no, sir, defendant, I haven't done nothing to deserve no names like that, and I've engaged a lawyer to do all the defending needed here. I'm just the man what stole the chickens. <laughs> now, I am not the man what stole the chickens, and I've engaged no one to speak on my behalf. As a matter of fact, I've done nothing. I only happened to be the first man to preach a sermon by wireless, and that is not what I had in mind when it was agreed that I should speak. I wanted to prove simply that it could be done, and I have proved it. So we conclude the service with our final hymn. <laughs> the church is one foundation. And I've been asked to clarify once again, this is not the church choir of McDermott Road. This is a record of the City Temple Quartet singing the church is one foundation.
And that concluded the sermon. So Dr. James Boone drove home in his Chandler six-cylinder motor car back to the church here to see that actually it had been a success and people had heard his sermon from this very building that we are in now. He was under no uh, ambitions to broadcast again and indeed he didn't ever broadcast again. In fact there was no uh, religious broadcast then until Christmas Eve that year. Um, which, of course, was when the BBC came along. Let me quickly read you a couple of the letters of feedback that uh, Dr Boone received a few weeks after. From Watford in Hertfordshire, uh, he got this telegram. Last night I happened, quite by chance, to be tuning in my one-valve wireless set when I was amazed to hear the strains of Oh God, our help in ages past. Later, I received your address with remarkable clearness. Another wrote from Godalming in Surrey. I should be glad to know if there will be another broadcast sermon next Sunday. There wasn't. Yours in gratitude and congratulations. Barkswell near Coventry. You'll be interested to learn that your sermon reached here quite clearly. Seven Oaks in Kent. The sermon was received by me absolutely perfect on a three-valve set. Eltham. The address given in such a manner enabled me to concentrate on it much better than in a church building. Hmm. Interesting. Um, in St Albans, a man was sitting so quietly listening in that his wife, was, his wife was concerned at the unusual quietness of her husband. She asked him, what's the matter with you? They're all so quiet. He held up a hand for silence and said, I'm listening to a sermon. Good for you, she replied. Glad to think you are finally listening to something that will be good for you. And uh, Dr Boone noted, I merely mention these to show the scope of the work, to show and to prove that wireless for extending the kingdom is there if we can but use it. The Daily Telegraph wrote about it as well. The latest pioneer, they said, is Dr. Boone, president of the Peckham Christian Union, uh, heard as distinctly as if he'd been among his congregation. No longer need we tolerate a dull preacher, for we shall be able to switch on the inspired and inspiring eloquence of some prince of the pulpit. But, wrote the Telegraph, what is to become of dull preachers? <laughs> Who will go and see a second-class film if a Charlie Chaplin's available? Who will sit out a second-rate sermon when it's possible to subscribe, is the word they used, to the best preachers as easily as taking out a book from the library? So, essentially, they're predicting podcasting by a century. Uh, the final one I'll quote is from St Paul's Cathedral. Um, a representative of St Paul's said, I have no problem with preaching by wireless. In principle, I'm simply opposed to introducing sensational methods into worship, such as advertising. Needless to say, we are never likely to have a transmitting or receiving instrument installed at St Paul's Cathedral. Never say never. So that's the first religious broadcast, or indeed the story behind several first religious broadcasts, from the Electrophone to America to Peckham in South London. Now I followed on in Peckham by then giving a little rough guide to the history of religious broadcasting from there. Now, a lot of this was on our previous episode 60 about the history of religious broadcasting, but I did include some new bits, so let's have a listen. 1923 then gets off and running. Early January then, you've got every Sunday wreath continuing that idea. We need a preacher every Sunday. And essentially, he goes through his address book. He goes to his family address book and, and finds people like Gypsy Smith, Woodbine Willie, the War Padre, and gets them all to do little mini sermons on a, on a Sunday. Wreath applied on behalf of the BBC to broadcast the royal wedding that spring. Um, between uh, the future King of England and the future Queen Mother, as many of us would know her, Queen Elizabeth II's mum. And the royal couple were well behind their wedding being broadcast, but the Dean of Westminster was against it for the simple reason, he said, that we don't know who could be listening. Men could be listening in pubs with their hats on. Mm. <laughs> that was the reason given, no royal wedding broadcast. 
Archbishop of Canterbury then was convinced to back radio uh, by one legendary dinner party. John Reith invited the Archbishop and his wife to dinner at the Reith residence. And Reith, by this point, had got, he'd only just started listening to the radio in late January. He'd had the job for two months, not bothered listening to the thing. Uh, but he was given a radio and he had his radio installed in a bit of furniture. So Reith very cleverly walked over and uh, while they were having dinner, essentially just turned on the radio and suddenly music happened around them. The Archbishop was amazed by this, but didn't like the music. And so Reith instantly phoned up Marconi House, as it was then, and asked for a different song. He said, could you play a bit of uh, Schubert? And the band playing just stopped mid-song and started playing Schubert for the Archbishop of Canterbury. So, all request radio um, for the Archbishop. But that made him convinced of the power of broadcasting. January 1924, the first broadcast service on the BBC by the legendary Reverend Dick Shepherd. I'm pretty sure from what I can gather in my research that actually the BBC microphone broadcast this out there, but they couldn't record that. But separately, because they knew it was a notable event, they had a different microphone at the same event, which was being recorded by the HMV Gramophone Company. And that's why it's a bit crackly, because I, I believe this is a genuine recording from January 1924. To be allowed to say prayers, to sing hymns, and to talk religion in the presence of any of you who are willing to listen. We count it a great happiness as well as a grave responsibility. It comes to us here not because we are more capable than other churches, but because St. Martin in the field, from its position at the very heart of the empire, is of necessity known, at least by name, to countless people. Tonight we begin then the happy, if difficult, task of attempting to make contact with a great multitude of unseen people, which no man can number. Ah, yes. Now, that first broadcast church service on the BBC, 6th of January, 1924. Well, technically, it wasn't actually the very first one, because December 2nd, 1923, the BBC's Aberdeen station, 2BD, aired its first Gaelic programme, and it aired it from a church. Reverend John Bain spoke from the High United Free Church in Aberdeen. There was a 15-minute religious address, and it was in Gaelic, but it was indeed a church service. Now, all right, maybe it wasn't a full-length church service, and it wasn't indeed in English, but it still counts, surely, as the BBC's first broadcast church service. Worth mentioning as well, though, is between October and December of 1923, the Cardiff station, 5WA, under this maverick station director, Arthur Corbett Smith. Now, they had some Sunday evening broadcasts, a preacher and a choir, all from the same church, different each week. So, for example, 28th of October, 1923, Cardiff's Cathedral Road Presbyterian Church. The choir sang and their preacher spoke. The week after that, 4th November, it was Charles Street Congregational Church's turn. Newport Road United Methodist, then Wood Street Congregational, St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church on the 2nd of December. So each week, it seems they zoomed in on a particular church and got them to provide the hymns and the preach. Now, Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, looked into this and couldn't see any evidence in the newspapers that these were outside broadcasts, relays from a church. So perhaps then choir and preacher came into the studio and essentially gave what almost looks like a service, a broadcast church service. So 
they again i think all count as part of that origin story of the first bbc broadcast church service leading towards 6th of january 1924 and their official first broadcast service flash forward a couple of years and you get actually a letter from a listener who really wanted a daily service a daily even song and after a couple of years of letter writing to the radio times and the bbc they finally relented and the daily service appeared it's still on today on radio 4's long wave and it's moving soon to radio 4 extra so its future is secured although the way we hear it is changing. Anyway, a little more from my Peckham demonstration of the history of religious broadcasting from there. Although I'll only include bits that we didn't mention on our History of Religious Broadcasting episode. Because you know what? We've heard a lot about Christianity, but what about the first Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist and Hindu broadcasters? Any guesses? 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s? Place your bets. All right, gambling's frowned on in most of those religions. Let's find out when they began. You start to get, actually, little flavours of other faiths as well. This is the first Muslim broadcaster, 4th of December 1923, Sheikh Ramatala al-Farouk, aka the Right Honourable Lord Headley, the famous Muslim peer, uh, talking on his recent experiences at Mecca. So uh, he was an upper-class um, Irish peer who was a Muslim convert and uh, established, I think, the Muslim Society of London at the time. So he broadcast uh, on the 4th of December. These aren't things I've found in history books as such. Essentially, this is me going through every single day of the BBC programme guide to see who I think were the first people of different faiths. So I may be wrong. I might have missed someone, OK? But it seems to me that this is our first Muslim broadcaster. 4th of April 1924. The first uh, Hindu broadcaster is Siddhar Mohana Mitra, who was um, reading stories that he had uh, translated uh, from the original Sanskrit, and that was actually the first of many broadcasts he did over the course of 1924, a whole series really uh, reading out his Hindu tales. Then you have later that year the first Jewish broadcaster. 5th of October 1924. This is the chief rabbi Joseph Hertz. I believe his great grandson I think still does pause for thought today on Radio 2 I think. 27th of May 1926. The first uh, Buddhist broadcaster with the wonderful name Christmas Humphreys. Oh, what a name that is. And again this is an upper class convert to Buddhism uh, in this case and uh, he, he spoke on the history of Buddha. He founded the Buddhist Society of England I believe it was. But it, it goes to show at this point the dare I say the acceptable face of different religions across the world seems to be upper class white male essentially. If you can find them converting great they're on the air that's uh, 1920s for you. So we're now into the Second World War and I think late 1930s Big change of religious broadcasting, I think, for a few reasons. One, Reith left the BBC in 1938. Another, people like Reverend Dick Shepherd, he died, and those well-beloved uh, radio reverends, like Reverend W.H. Elliot as well, very popular in the 20s and 30s, they were retiring. And also, you have then the Second World War, and a lot of the regular religious broadcasters, who were often ordained ministers, were pacifists. There was then a trend more towards uh, lay broadcasters, lay people. C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers was the first. She wrote a notable uh, play for children, in fact, called The Man Born to be King. And that's, it's a, I've got the book, I mean, it's a wonderful play because it's one of the very first updates that actually uh, take the Bible and don't do the King James Version, don't do the, the authorised version, but they give it an update. 
and pages of it read like a Jimmy McGovern adaptation. It's quite, we're ready for a new version, I think, have a word. But it's, it's quite a wonderful, uh, wonderful play. And there has been uh, newer versions since. But then she was invited in to give her own sort of uh, thought for the day kind of moments. And she also got in then C.S. Lewis before he was writing Narnia and things like that. And his broadcasts, his broadcast talks, um, became his books Mere Christianity. Yeah, then you get a sense of those people who are writers and maybe uh, not necessarily um, church leaders and, and religious leaders who are broadcasting. Thought for the day, pause for thought, the ancestors of those are um, programmes like Lift Up Your Hearts, little uh, daily um, uplifting inspirational moments. Thought for the day, pause for thought, they come along once you get that uh, delineation of Radio 1, 2, 3 and 4. The very first uh, week of pause for thought on Radio 2 in 1970, you get um, people like uh, a builder, um, a doctor, that sort of thing. And a bit like Dr James Ebenezer Boone, you get a medical doctor coming in to give their inspirational thought for the day or pause for thought. Songs of Praise uh, comes along when Donald Bavistock, broadcasting executive, he was the guy behind Emmerdale, TV Darts and Songs of Praise. What a legacy. What a guy. Where would it be without him? And, uh, and it was to fill the preserved, ever since the days of wreath, Sunday was sacred for broadcasting. You know, you don't want to put too much excitement on the air because people wanna, you want to get people to go to church, essentially, um, which, of course, then led to people turning off the radio sometimes, wanting to listen to Radio Luxembourg and pop music and things like that. So there was a preserved slot on television on a Sunday evening, and Donald Bavistock said, let's have some, uh, some songs of praise, notable, notably not words of praise, the sermons not so much, the hymns, let's have some sing-along hymns. And that's where that uh, came along there. You flash forward a little bit later, and then you start to get, of course, more analysis, more religious, um, essentially ways of talking about religion that are not so much... Um, giving words of inspiration and senses of worship and we have things like a uh, heart of the matter and look we've gone for pilgrimage as well I've really flashed forward here now but the present day BBC the way you can talk about faith in very very different ways and I think more than ever of course we need to be safeguarding those opportunities to talk about faith and talk about religion uh, in uh, an accessible exciting uh, way in today's changing media landscape and uh, to conclude here, I've put live streaming churches, almost the exact opposite of what Dr. Boone did 101 years ago. Back then, this church was packed with people, but no one was here in the pandemic. The pews are empty um, and you have instead just one uh, church leader up front broadcasting essentially via a mobile phone. And I've included sort of this image as pretty much the end of um, the, the century, I suppose. Justin Welby preaching at the Queen's funeral. And they say that the viewing figures for that was the only broadcast, potentially, if the numbers are right, and it's a bit of guesswork, of course, the only broadcast that's ever been watched by half the planet in one go. Apparently, just over half the planet were watching at that time. And that will never happen again, of course. The way we consume television has changed massively. We now watch on devices in rooms, essentially, across the household as a family. But gathered around the set, there's never going to be an event like Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. That means that Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, effectively, potentially, the only religious message, the only religious broadcast ever heard by half the planet in one go. The only other time I can think of in history where a religious message was sent to half the planet at the same time was when God spoke to Adam. 
It's tenuous, but go with it. That's all I can think of. And then the future. As far as I'm concerned, religious broadcasting is, um, is a marvel. And I think if we need to change how we do it, if we need to make sure that we are making uh, religious programmes that connect with people in different ways, you know, I love the way that it's been brought into dramas, um, like Broken, the Sean Bean, Jimmy McGovern, was, was beautiful. And I think we need to still communicate faith. In, in now more than ever, you can see that actually we need to learn how to coexist. And you look at what's happening across, across the world. There's a quote I thought I would sort of just, just end on. Marconi said this, he said, communication between peoples widely separated in space and thought is undoubtedly the greatest weapon against the evils of misunderstanding and jealousy. And if my fundamental invention goes some way towards averting the evils of war, I shall not feel that I have lived in vain. And I thought, absolutely, you know, we have this great technology that we can communicate. It's really, an, it's an empathy machine, I think, in many ways. We don't need to be in the same room as each other to broadcast blessings or entertainment or whatever it might be. And, you know, we need mutual understanding between faiths, between different belief systems, more than ever, I think. Um, and, uh, and long may it continue in many ways. But thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. And as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Good night. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you joined in with the hymns at home. And uh, yeah, that was a joy to perform. So thanks once again to Christchurch Evangelical, everyone who came along and made that possible. And I've got a few other ideas up my sleeve of how we can recreate full broadcasts that obviously never recorded, that hopefully somehow we can preserve for future generations exactly what it would have sounded like to be there for those landmark moments of early broadcasting. Merry post-Christmas, merry epiphany, merry listening, happy day to you wherever you are. And thank you for being part of this British Broadcasting Century podcast project. If you would like to support us, £5 a month on patreon.com slash paulcarenza gets you access to our videos and behind-the-scenes writings and things. I put a video and a little written extract up each month. We will return, of course, throughout 2024 with many more episodes, and I've got a few that I'm particularly looking forward to. Our next three or four, I think, are going to be really quite special. Next episode, we're closing Marconi House. The BBC will leave from there, and I'll be reading to you an excerpt from Arthur Burroughs, the first voice of the BBC, a memoir that you will not have heard before. It's not been out there. I found it in the Written Archive Centre. Only one or two people have seen it, and it's not out there online at all. But he has some different memories of how the Marconi House days began at the BBC. Then we're going to recreate the launch of Savoy Hill in a couple of episodes' time. Amazing stories there, and we've got the full speeches from John Reith and Lord Gainford. We'll be reading those to you and giving you some extracts. After that, it's the launch of Women's Hour, and Dr Kate Murphy will be joining us for that. So many wonderful guests, so much to pack in. I better go and start my researching and editing because it's going to take all year to bring it to you. Thank you for being here this year and stick with us for the next. And speaking of religious broadcasting, for today's BBC, I'll be bringing the first religious broadcast to Radio 2 in 2024, January the 1st at 7.15 in the morning, New Year's Day. I'll be pausing for thought with uh, Zoe Ball or whoever's standing in for her for New Year's Day. So as I'm actually there part of today's religious broadcasting, I think it's a joy to find out how it all began. 
British Broadcasting Century podcast is presented and produced by Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips beyond 50 years are beyond copyright, but other rights may reside in places that we can't quite fathom. The bits that are the BBC's are used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. All of them. Find us on social media and find Paul on tour. paulcarenza.com slash tour for details. Contact the podcast. Paul at paulcarenza.com will find its way to us. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for the closing of Marconi House and the start of a new season of the British Broadcasting Century.